0: So the virtue of trust is paramount to our our lives of faith because uh, God is spirit. And since God is spirit, uh, the evidence for his daily presence can only be detected through faith. And faith needs trust. Trust that God is actually alive, trust that God cares, trust that God is working on our behalf. And so the disposition of the Christian to some extent is one of um, I would call it a disinterested stance, meaning not that he's not interested in things, but there is a a surrender into the hope that God is working for our welfare, God is working for our good. And the enemy to this trust and this hope and this surrender, of course, is fear that we want to we give ourselves and then we, we snatch it back. We give ourselves in and we change our mind and we say, oh, maybe I will control. Because to trust God is to feel like you're suspended in air. You're not quite sure you're going to land safely. And of course, this is where all the intimacy grows. All the intimacy grows when you start this surrendering and this trust. Previous to that, to some extent, our religion is probably made up of our own actions mimicking faith, controlling and maneuvering, trying to get God's attention by being good, when all along he's just asking for us to welcome his presence and believe he's there. And that's what changes all of our behavior is the actual receiving of his presence as the norm of our life. When all this movement around of trying to control and trying to manipulate and trying to prove to God we're good enough for him to love us ends. We just dwell in his presence and everything we thought we could achieve on our own. Is given. And that's where celebration and worship comes from. From our reception of what is given and the joy that it leaves us in, then we naturally respond. And we respond with worship, gratitude, thanksgiving. Now, as it says here on the, on the sheet, monks and nuns vow themselves to poverty, chastity, and obedience. But more importantly than monks and nuns, to some extent, saints, when they have this encounter, which leaves them in a state of trust, it's one of the first things they do. When we read church history, you see very clearly that when a saint has an encounter with God, one of the first things he does is say, Poverty, chastity, obedience. But he doesn't say that. He basically says, I'm dead now. Because I live in the presence of God. Dead to this world, as St. Paul said, alive to Christ. And the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience are basically vows of a dead man. One who has entered deeply into trust. No longer will I provide for my own love needs. God will take care of that. Chastity, celibacy. No longer will I provide for my own material needs. God will take care of that. Poverty. And no longer will I will my own good. God will deliver my good to me. Obedience. When you find yourself in the presence of God, you find yourself... That his love is so all-consuming that everything you used to want to do for yourself or take or grab for yourself, you find yourself receiving. So poverty, chastity, and obedience in the life of a saint is again just the configuration of heaven as it appears on earth. These people are dead. And what the monk and the nun and the saint get to first, we'll all get to later in life. We'll all get to poverty, chastity, and obedience. It's almost as if you can't go through death's door without being poor, chaste, obedient. These little rooms look like little monastery rooms. Uh, Your little twin beds You might be mourning the fact you're not together, or you might be quasi-celebrating it. But you're alone in that room. And that room basically has a desk, a bed, a chair, if you're lucky. And in my creepy imagination, when I go into a room like that and close the door, I think, nursing home. Now, right now, you might live in big houses, or you might be dreaming of big houses, and you're going to fill it with lots of kids. But as we head to life, everything gets sloughed and taken away, and we end up in the same room we're in this weekend. In other words, we end up looking a lot like monks and nuns. And that thing that they saw in God, which then dispensed them from all of the economic, personal economic, of course they have corporate economic needs, but dispensed them of all the personal economic needs, that's going to come to us too. And so this trust is built upon something very important. It's built upon whether or not you've had the encounter. And a lot of the uh, biography of our own lives will be, see how Jim trusts? Watch. Watch how Jim is trusting now. Ooh. Beautiful. Oh, Oh. See how Jim got scared? See how he took back? What he thought he gave? Oh, sad. And so there's an accumulation, hopefully, of going in the direction of trust. Of actually believing in a provident God who's alive. Alive enough to take care of us. And alive enough to communicate with regularly. As our peace. Paradoxically, with these vows we are then, as we said earlier, we have to be dead before we die. The other way of saying that is you have to be in heaven before you go to heaven. You have to be dead before you die. And the scriptures attest to this very clearly. You have to die to this world so that you can rise in the next and all saints are dead before they die. All holy people are dead before they die. That's why sometimes we can't get along with them. There's a lot of testimony to the fact of saints when they're when they're alive are very difficult people. And it's very clear as to why they might be very difficult. Perhaps they they do have some personality shortcomings. But the reason that they're difficult to live with is they're not really living with you. You're living in America. They're living in heaven. So if you're living with someone who's in heaven and you're in America, that's going to be tense filled. Because they don't think the way you think, act the way you act, choose the way you choose. And so, by the very nature of living with a dead person, it's unnerving. And to live with a saint is to live with a dead person. While you're still plodding through the decisions if you are going to join him or her. I always remember my grandmother, who I think was a saint. And uh, one day, my mother woke me up. I was about a 14-year-old boy or so. And, you know, you remember being a 14-year-old boy. The boy's in this room. Because as a 14-year-old boy, the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is jump out of bed and say, I wonder if I can help someone. Do you remember those great days of absolute self-giving? When you jumped out of bed and said, I wonder what Dad needs. Those are beautiful days. So my mother comes to wake me up and says, Nana needs you to help her. Go. Oh, man. Can't Kevin do it? No, you go. So I had to go to my grandmother's house. She needed help shopping that day. And I don't know what time it was, you know, 11 something in the morning. And uh, let's say it was 11 a.m., and, of course, she's old, so old people are always early. They've got nothing to do, so she's waiting on the porch. The older you get, the earlier you get, because you got nothing to do. I'll be there at 10, and I'll be there at 10. Don't be waiting at 8.30. Well, I've got nothing to do. So anyway, she's sitting on the porch. Exactly, of course, she's sitting on the porch. She had nothing to do. She's waiting. Hello, Jimmy. Getting the car and she drives over to the grocery store. wasn't that far. She gets out. We go into the grocery store. We start shopping. Get this. Get that. Grandpa likes that. I like this. Great. All of a sudden, the church bells start ringing very close to the grocery store. And she hears the bells and she just stops and she says, Oh, Jimmy. I have to say the rosary. I said, okay, Nana, go ahead, whatever you need to do, you know. I'll go get the sausage. Oh, no, Jimmy, you say it with me. And I said, what do you mean? Well, here. And then she takes out her rosaries from her purse. And the cross on the end of it is like that. (laughs) Just these huge rosaries. You know, to a 14-year-old boy, it's like, put that away. What are you doing? And my first thought was, I hope Roberta Nicotopoulos isn't in this store. Roberta Nicotopoulos was the girl I was in love with. Cute little blonde girl with freckles. And I thought, what would she think? My grandmother was already in the middle of the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father and to the Son. Jimmy, the first glorious mystery. She announces it, right? Our Father, who art in heaven. She's going down the aisle. Hail Mary, full of grace. So I'm thinking, what do you need, Nana? What do you need? Get me out of this aisle. So I go over, you know, I get some bread in the bread aisle. The second glorious mystery. She's announcing it out loud. She's coming down the frozen food aisle. Hello, Helen. Our Father who art in heaven. The rosaries are clanging on the cart and I'm looking for a hole to die in. Right? Where's the hole I can die in? She's dead. It was time to be with Jesus. Come hell or high water, I'm going to be with Jesus. And if the rest of the world is not with Jesus... It's fine with the dead woman. She could care less, right? And in this, in this, in this semblance of, of living this way, it's very much like falling in love, first love, right? Let's say you're separated from the one you love for a while and you meet in the airport and there you are, right? You run toward each other in a big embrace and you don't look around, only old people may do that. You don't look around and say, I hope no one sees this. And give them a little peck on the cheek. When you're young and love and you see her, you see him, you run. And you embrace and you kiss in public. And people walk by and say, oh. They only do that with young people. If it was an old person, they'd say, gross. Why are you doing that? Why are you showing affection? You're almost a corpse. Cut it out. But with with young people, it's, oh, it's so beautiful. So in the middle area of the airport, you see people hugging, embracing. Without a thought of what? Themselves. That's the freedom of the saint. The freedom of the saint is, I'm thinking of him. And whether it's the rosary in the grocery store or some other choices that saints are making, their thought is, I'm only thinking of him. Why? Because I trusted him and he was faithful. In other words, I learned through my acts of trust that this is the one I can count on. And so I have no shame and no embarrassment in publicly Loving him. That's the movement of the saints. So if you look on page 16, we want to come that close to Jesus ourselves. And we want to come that close to Jesus in the condition that we are. Remember, we don't have to clean ourselves up first to come to Jesus. Jesus is the cleaning agent. To try and clean up first is to remain filthy. Come to Jesus, he's the cleaning agent. The bottom of page 16. Christ never first accuses the heart, he always first calls the heart. Jim come, not Jim, you are a disappointment to me. The, the, the living God always calls to the heart first, never accuses. Remember, Jesus himself said that he did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. So he doesn't accuse, he invites, come, come. Remember? First words out of Jesus' mouth to some extent. Come follow me. Come be with me. Oh, first let me go and clean up. No. Come follow me. The way I am, the way you are. The relationship, the the road to Emmaus will clean you. Staying with me will clean you. That's, no, that's why no matter how, what shape you're in, you always must choose to trust that he is who he says he is. Who's that? Love itself. No matter what shape you're in, you must trust. He said it. I remember it. He is love. He's not condemnation. What is Christ calling you to? Remember, he's a calling, he's not accusing. So you all all may have ideas in your head about how your wife or your husband have to be better. But what you want to focus in on is how Christ is inviting you to himself. Not the other one, but you. The famous story, right, of a priest telling people that you know when 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 you're in confession uh excuse me sir but you're um you're confessing your wife's sins you know you're here for yourself confess your own sins what's jesus calling you to that reminds me sometimes in marriage you get so close i remember we went to confession once and um I went in first, and Marianne went in second, and then we got in the car. And as we're driving home, we're pulling out of the parking lot. She said, did you remember to say this? And the only reason she could say that, right, is because she's the victim of the sins. Did you remember to say this? And, of course, I said, of course I did, dear. I don't remember if I did or not. But when when you live with the person you sin most against, of course she's going to remember Jesus wants us to be very patient with ourselves with this question. What is he calling you to? Not your husband, not your wife. You. And believe me, if you are faithful to that, your husband and your wife will change. Guaranteed. If you concentrate on what Jesus is inviting you to do, And you change. Your spouse will change. And even if the change is a reconfiguration of habits, he or she will notice the change is happening in you and will have to adjust. And that adjustment will raise consciousness in them. And even if from your prayers in purgatory, You will see the change in your husband or your wife if you do what Christ is calling you to do what are you resisting to receive from him Jesus said that beautiful question do you want to be healed you know what Jesus I really prefer to be sick and then of course Jesus would leave you sick There's a readiness to conversion. There's a readiness. What are you resisting to receive? We love our hiding places, our sins, more than we love Jesus. That's why we keep going to them. And the hiding places are clear, right? The deadly sins of gluttony and envy and anger and lust and sloth. Those hiding places we run to first, like vermin you see, dive under the, the porch or dive into a hole. We're afraid. We're in pain. We're lonely. We go right to the hiding place. What are you resisting to receive? Jesus, I like gluttony. Jesus, I like envy. Remember, all of these sins give us pleasure. Even anger. Anger gives us pleasure, or we would have given it up years ago. There is a a pleasure in every deadly sin that becomes addictive. Which one is it? And of course, Satan knows your weak point, and that's why he always tempts you right there. And that's why you want to shore up that weak point. Or he'll get in with the temptation to your favorite hiding place. You want to shore it up. We had a squirrel come in our basement once because we didn't put um, some wood that was suggested in our basement area. And so one day Marianne goes to do the laundry, and she screams. And I thought, there can't be that much laundry. And it was a squirrel right running around down near the washing machine. So she goes running up, and I go down, and I'm saying, what are you yelling about? She's a squirrel running, and then I see it. I said, okay, let's go. And I said, let's get, get traps, and so we got some friend of ours who had traps, and he put it in the basement. And every day you cr- cr- open the door a little because you don't want the squirrel at the top step, you know, coming into your house. And you go down with a flashlight, and you're looking, and all the traps are empty. Where is this thing? Because we heard it every night down there. So one Sunday morning I go down. So maybe it'll be in the trap today. And he wasn't in the trap. He chewed a hole in the basement door, which was made of wood, and left. And Marianne said when she discovered this, Jim, why didn't you just leave the door open? (laughs) Because I'm stupid. So we had traps everywhere, and, and all I had to do was open the door. But it was a door we never used, that's my excuse. We had boxes in front of it and stuff. So I was rationalizing my stupidity. First there was this little hole and he got in because I didn't shore up the hole. And then he wreaked all this havoc. And even, you could say, made me go mentally insane because the door could have just been open. That's sin. That's what sin does. Gets in, runs around, literally makes you insane. It makes you not you. Shore up the weak points. Where are they? It used to be in the language of avoid the near occasion of sin, which was another way of the church saying shore up your weak points. Where has your love become routine? Not in the good sense of having a sober structure in your family, but in the negative sense wherein you no longer see beauty or aspire for ongoing conversion. Top of page 17. Of course there's going to be routine in your family. The routine to some extent gives you structure. But where have you lost the sense of beauty Where have you lost the sense of dynamic movement of your own spiritual, moral life in the marriage? So with these questions in mind, I just want to invite you into a prayer tonight with the Blessed Sacrament. And I just invite you to come forward to the Blessed Sacrament and to touch the base of it with whatever you have as a response to these questions, particularly to um, what is Christ calling you to in your marriage? That first question. What is Christ calling you to in your marriage? And you just want to come up. I just invite you first. You can genuflect here in front or in the aisle there. But just genuflect first, then come up. And then both of you put your hands on the monstrance bottom there, the base. What is Jesus calling you to in the marriage? And just in pure silence, you just stand there. Just be there. But there is a particular grace to your physical contact to this monstrance and Jesus answering this prayer for you. Jesus, where are you calling me? in my marriage? What do you want me to do? And you just take a a minute or two at the base. Of course, we have a lot of people here. So if you get caught up in a mystical ecstasy, okay. But just a minute or two. And then you can continue your prayer, go back to your pew and just continue it. But there's a real grace in the dispensation of the touching. Of where the living God is visiting us. And then your open heart meets this physical touching. Jesus, what are you calling me to in your marriage?